This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Happy Friday afternoon. It is good to be here. Thank you for being part of the Country Hour today. And this hour, you're going to head off to Williams, which is a few hours southeast of Perth. This is home to WA's biggest private feedlotter. And this feedlotter has decided that sale yard cattle prices are just too high for him at the moment. Usually, he goes along to the sales, but yesterday did not attend the Mount Barker cattle sale because, well, prices have just reached a point where it's not worth the money for him. You'll head off to Williams and meet him just after half past 12 today. And also a couple of new faces about to appear on the state's main grain handlers board, the CBH group. There have been a a couple of by-elections in place, District 1 and District 4 growers have been voting and had up until 10 o'clock this morning to cast a vote for those two new grower director members. Now, the timing of this is a little bit tricky. The voting closed at 10, so hopefully between now and 1 o'clock the results will come through and we'll give those two successful candidates a call and see who they are in District 1 and 2. And just speaking of CBH today and starting in the Geraldton port zone because Morrowa grain growers are frustrated with the standard of their receival site and CBH's refusal to start work on upgrades that were promised two years ago. Growers have complained for years that the site's Weybridge sample hut is in the wrong position, causing lengthy delays with trucks queuing and spilling out onto a busy public road. And growers are now worried main roads will close the site this harvest to keep the road clear and safe. At a meeting in Morrowa yesterday, acting CEO Ben McNamara told growers there are no plans to upgrade the site for at least five years. Local grain grower Grant Chadwick says that's not good enough. We saw the problems when they put the new bridge in was not going to work. So we had them come up before 2019 harvest. And Jimmy Wilson then agreed that it was in the wrong spot and they said they would rectify the problem. Well, they fixed for the problem for 2019 harvest was put traffic lights in, which we couldn't leave the sample hut until we saw a green light, which was hard to see because you were leaving site and coming back around. It didn't work, but it was fine for a light year. Last year, they had the Shire close the road and put a portable way bridge and a sample hut on the road and changed access to the site, but we could only have four trucks in the queue before we went out onto a main road. And so we were promised back then for Jimmy Wilson to fix the issue. And then we've had the meeting yesterday with um, the CBH management group. And this is going on for two and a half years now. And they have no fix for us for the next five years. So what they promised two and a half years ago hasn't come about and won't be coming about. I understand that the meeting got quite heated yesterday. Is that because the growers were expecting a different outcome this time around? Uh, no, it didn't get heated. Just getting a little bit disappointed that we'd just been fed a few, you know, 
doesn't meet safety. They're all about safety and it doesn't meet their safety and compliance issues. And this is where they're all about this sort of thing and everyone's getting a bit fed up with that. And I was probably saying for most people on this eastern line from Latham to Mullawa are starting to get pretty fed up with the centric of Mininu and Karnama getting more upgrades, but this line is getting none and they're forcing us to cart further. Did the management group give a reason why the work would be delayed further? Oh, it's all about cost and what they've got budgeted to do to other things. So we fully understand that. But when you've made, made a mistake and this, this site has got every potential to be closed by main roads because of that non-compliance of truck queues, so we could lose 70,000 tonne for this year's harvest any time soon and they don't have any plan for that and didn't have any plan for that. If that bin is closed due to um, too many trucks around the place, where will you deliver your grain? Oh, we'll have to go to Mininu and probably back to Pringery, but um, Mininu can't keep coping with us all going over there. With the prospect of a really good harvest this year, is that why the solution won't work this year? Yes and no. It didn't really, at times last year when the sand part broke down, it didn't work last year, so... We were already out on the road last year and on an average year. Trying to put the mocker on what the season could be this year, but we don't need too much uh, like an average rainfall from now on in. We're looking at a little above, average to above. The growers who attended the meeting yesterday, were they under the impression that there would be a different outcome? Why were they thinking that way? No, I think as growers, we pretty much go into these CBH meetings now knowing the outcome is not going to be what we want because we've learnt that from previous meetings. I think... Most growers on not around strategic sites would know that problem. It wouldn't, it's not just centred around this area. Yeah, I think we're just getting fed up with it, to be honest. But they had promised you that? Yes, Jimmy Wilson promised, and I wish I'd got it in writing, but I didn't. We have learnt now every meeting we go to, we write everything down, that they would fix the problem, in which they haven't. Yeah. They're just quite happy rolling on what they hoping that the Shire would give in to them every year. Hopefully the main roads would... Um, look the other way, you can't keep doing that. What's this potentially going to cost you? Oh, I haven't even factored that in yet. No, I don't really want to know. I'm a bit big worried about that problem. I'm fully aware of what CBH and the position is with the network and um, I do understand there's compromises. We couldn't keep running all these old sites. It wasn't economical. But there shouldn't be these sorts of compromises. Morrowa grain grower Grant Chadwick speaking to Lucinda Jose and talking about how he and other growers in that Morrowa region are frustrated with the standard of their receival site and CBH's refusal to start work on upgrades that were promised a couple of years ago. Now, the Chief Operations Officer, Ben McNamara, who is going to be the Acting Chief Executive Officer as of the start of next month, has just texted through a response to Grant's concerns that he's raised here on the Country Hour today. And it says, We have been honest and open with growers about plans for the Morrowa site. CBH has been clear with Morrowa growers that the site is not currently listed on the Network Capital Prioritisation List. CBH's current network priorities are sustaining capital projects, and rail and port outloading infrastructure. It goes on to say CBH is committed to the Morrowa site. It is a core network site and we continue to work with the Shire of Morrowa to find solutions to improve performance, particularly in relation to traffic management and site layout. 
And importantly, we encourage growers in the region to use Paddock Planner to let us know the amount of crop planted within the Morrowa catchment each year. This will enable us to plan for expected demand at the site and if emergency storage is required, especially this year when growers in the region expect an above-average harvest. That is the statement just through on the email from CBH's Chief Operations Officer, Ben McNamara. Uh, your thoughts, you're welcome to shoot them through on the text. I can see a few already coming through. It is Maybe you're a grower in the Morrowa region. Maybe you're a grower in another part of the network. How do you feel about your receival site and the standard of it? 0448 It is 14 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. One of Western Australia's largest citrus producers says the WA market is flooded with fruit because growers across the country are having problems getting produce into China. China has traditionally been an important export market for Australian citrus growers with strong demand and good prices. But Daniel Ying from the Dandarigan-based AgriFresh says that's not the case this season. He says due to international relations, exports to China are well down. He says the demand is still there, but delays at ports has led to less containers being shipped. I don't think it's that China doesn't want Australian citrus. I think it's more so the delay in getting, um, you know, the logistics part of it to um, to getting it to the consumer. From what I hear, um, there's been a lot of um, holdups at ports, which doesn't help in moving the product from the farm to the consumer, especially when it's been already on the water for so many days. Citrus Australia has been working very hard to get the relationship back on track um, and uh, pushing uh, Australian citrus back into China quickly. They do pay premium for our product. They do consume a lot of Australian citrus. And we've seen that in the past years where consumption has increased and demand has increased in a large way. We do want China back on board, that's for sure. You will hear the full story on the Country Hour on Monday, quarter past 12. Western Australia's largest banana grower has knocked down some of his plantation because he says he just can't find enough pickers. After two difficult seasons, the sight of flattened plants and fallen bunches is gut-wrenching for Kununurra farmer Lachlan Dobson. His family's business is now struggling to survive. But despite the setbacks, he's optimistic a new crop will be their saviour. There's about three hectares knocked down here a lot. Yeah. You can see there's a bunch on the ground that would have been harvested in a couple of weeks. That must be a bit heartbreaking for you. Obviously we're not going to worry about that one. Yeah, it's disappointing. It's pretty sad to look out and see all these pushed over banana trees. How did you get to this decision, Log? We were going through and picking it about a month ago, but we just haven't been able to get enough staff to be able to get to this block or this end of the farm. So uh, we haven't been able to do our, our weekly harvest. So instead of letting the fruit rot and creating fruit fly problems and everything else, we're just going to have to knock it over. So we're uh, 
going through with the tractor and pushing it over and um, behind the tractor there's big discs just cutting it up to try and get it to dry out, ready to plough. How hard has it been to get people to pick your fruit? There's just no workers anywhere really in Australia, which is the really frustrating bit. We've been working with Kimberley Group Training and Job Pathways to try and encourage some Indigenous guys in town to come and have a work. And we've got four or five on this morning, which is really good. Uh, but we can't get enough to, um, to get the jobs done that we need to get done. And there's no backpackers coming through town. So we're just limited and do the best you can, I guess. I know a lot of people in town have had problems securing enough workers. Have you had any luck with seasonal workers? There's only, there's only a limited number of seasonal workers currently in town and, and they're of the um, guys that are being supplied to, um, to the farmers but that uh, comes at a fairly high price. So if you had a higher value crop, uh, maybe that would be more worthwhile. But at the moment with our bananas, it's, we're relying on um, you know, workers that uh, are going to cost us about $32 an hour and we can't afford to pay the the 45 that uh, are on offer from the Vanuatu guys. How many workers do you need out here, Locke, to make your plantation more viable? Oh, look, there's work that's, that's not being done and hasn't been done since the end of January. So I could do with probably another 20 workers and obviously we're not going to get that. So we're just planning now to harvest the best quality fruit with the highest crop load uh, to make sure that the, the picking and packing and everything's as cheap as it possibly can be because we certainly haven't made any money for the last two wet seasons but we'd still spent you know, a lot of money to plant an additional 20 hectares in both those years. Uh, this wet season that's just gone has been a ripper but the two prior to that our production had been reduced down to 20% of what it should have been uh, just because it's been so, it was so hot and so dry. So we're at that point where um, we really need a successful year this year to try and get some runs on the board. How much does this block knock off your production? Probably nearly 4,500 boxes a hectare in there and at the moment we're selling them for about $30. But this is only the first block. There'll be more that we have to knock out. So our total area at the moment is a bit less than 100 hectares. So we're looking at probably 30% of our total area. Is it hard to put a dollar figure on that loss? Oh, yeah, probably 1.2, 1.5 million. Goodness, that's, that that's must over, be really rough. That's over the year. So, yeah, no, it is. Um, especially when we've got, um, we're trying to recover from the two bad wet seasons. Just trying, any, trying anything at the moment and just try to diversify, trying to get some cash flow, just trying to survive. You're not giving up without a fight. Let's go and take a look at some of those diversification crops that you've put in. This is one of the original bamboo plants we planted around the uh, boundary of the farm. It's a bit of a shelter, uh, a windbreak. I saw these new bamboo shoots coming up and I figured that there's uh, opportunity for, um, for being able to propagate them, grow them up to order and uh, get them shipped out as soon as we can. The advantage of a nursery up here is that what takes two years to grow down south we can do in a year up here so we can get that um, the size of the plant and the value of the plant pretty quickly. And what's the response been like? 
Oh, there's a market there. It's, um, there's people out in the stations already that have contacted me and they want some plants. And uh, there's obviously opportunities around Kununurra where there's some unsightly yards. And so bamboo's a good one. This is a clumping variety and an edible variety and uh, it's big. So it'd serve its purpose really well. We've just walked over to what looks to be some rosella lock and this was a bit of a happy accident for you guys, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Last year I was driving around the other side of town and I saw the rosella plant there and I didn't know anything about it. So I thought I'd pick a few and plant them out here in the pawpaw patch and just sort of see what's going to happen. And uh, with the water they've grown extraordinarily well and, and oh, I sent some down for a, a, a trial down in... Um, Perth market at Canning Vale with quality produce and uh, no one had it down there so yeah we've got orders to actually pick it and supply some um, some chefs down there in Perth. That's fantastic so that's another opportunity for you to try and diversify. Yeah look we'll gather some seed from the rosella crop this year and we'll probably plant four or five rows of it in the pawpaw patch and um, uh, be able to uh, start harvesting that after the wet season next year and it'll usually go for three or four months and then um, it's an annual crop so it grows flowers fruits and then then dies before the uh, wet season. There's a bit going on on your farm at the moment Locke you're hopeful that the more you diversify uh, the stronger your business gets. Oh that's what we're working on especially this year after those two shocking shocking wet seasons from going from a um, very productive and, and valuable operation to one that's under severe financial pressure. We're certainly not going to uh, uh, voluntarily surrender the farm and we're certainly not going to um, uh, sell it cheap. Yeah, through all the, all the emotional stress and strains that we've been through, it could have been quite easy just to give up and, and just say, no, this is too hard and go away but that doesn't fit our farming mentality it's it's always give it a dip give it your best shot that you can do it and um, you try and make the best of other opportunities that you can identify. Lachlan Dobson from Kimberley Produce in Kununurra speaking to Courtney Fowler you can read more about the story it's online for you right now just search Kimberley Bananas ABC 23 past 12 here on the Country Hour. An update from the newsroom is not far away. Then it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology. There is some rain on the way. I wonder if it's coming your way. You will find out shortly uh, during that cross to the Bureau and then the wool market results just before the news at one. Right now, though, the developers of a proposed new iron ore mine in Western Australia's goldfields plan to use hydrogen power in one of the first trials of its kind. MacArthur Minerals is working towards a final investment decision later this year for its Eulering project, 200 kilometres northwest of Kalgoorlie, Boulder. The CEO is Andrew Bruton. So our magnetite project is, our, I guess, our, our flagship project at, at uh, Moonshine, uh, and we're looking to go through the Esperance, down the Kalgoorlie, the Esperance rail line and through Esperance Port with that. So um, we signed an MOU with um, uh, Southern Port uh, at Esperance uh, earlier in uh, the year to look at a rail unloading solution down there, and we're working with them through the master planning process to get port access uh, through the port of Esperance. So we're comfortable that's tracking well, and we're, that'll feed into our feasibility study, which we're uh, in, in the process of uh, putting together at the moment for the magnetite project. 
you've also signed an agreement this week, Andrew, to potentially introduce hydrogen power at the mine, and that'd be obviously one of the first mining operations in WA to to go down that route. Why have you decided to to look at hydrogen power? Well, it, look, it's pretty simple for us, um, Jared. I mean, we're we're targeting um, you know the highest levels of ESG compliance that we can for the development of our, our, our project. It's important for us that you know as a new company coming into production that we do it in the most sustainable way. Uh, so integrating hydrogen and other renewable technologies is a, is a real no-brainer. The cost of renewables is coming down. The story for hydrogen is going to start increasing over the course of the next several decades. So we've really got to lead with the, lead, lead from the front with that. Uh, and I think um, if we can do that um, as an early follower uh, and we can bring our costs our energy costs down in the process of doing that, then that um, re- represents you know, a double win for us, a win for us and a win for uh, you know, the environment. So you've signed an agreement with a private company that's actually backed by the University of New South Wales. Could you explain how that sort of deal works and what you're planning to run off of hydrogen power? Yeah, sure. So look, the first phase of what we're looking to do is to get a direct shipment or um, project up and running as soon as possible. And the the first phase of this strategic uh, partnership agreement we've got with Lavo will involve a rollout of some existing uh, hydrogen storage units that they've already commercialised in Australia. They're in partnership with the University of New South Wales uh, and investment firm Prov- uh, Providence Asset Group. Uh, so under the first phase of the agreement, what we'll be doing is uh, looking to try and integrate uh, some 40 kilowatt hour hydrogen storage units uh, at our remote accommodation facilities at camp. And, and we'll how big how would that camp be? I, I might, might ask as well. And given the amount of workers you'd need for a new iron ore operation? Yeah, look, the camp's probably going to be housing around about 100 uh, 100 people. Uh, So we'll trial those systems on a number of the the facilities there and we'll see how they work. And obviously we want to look at the performance of that um, equipment in a remote environment. So uh, if that all goes well, we could look to scale up uh, that and obviously look at the benefits that we get from a pricing perspective by having reduced diesel consumption and, and, all, and uh, all of that as well. You're obviously in a remote part of the goldfield, so it's off-grid and it would have been if you didn't go down the hydrogen path. Obviously diesel generators uh, to power the mines, tens of thousands of litres of diesel burnt into the atmosphere, so um, that's obviously why you've gone down this the alternative route? Yeah, it is, and uh, I think it's we, we're looking to do it as green as possible. We're also looking to try and optimise costs as much as we possibly can, uh, and you know this will be a lead into examining if we can bring in hydrogen at a larger scale further down the track into our our flagship magnetite project that's due to come online uh, in uh, in several years' time. If the technology proves itself and that they can get it up to scale, and they're already they're already uh, trialling a commercial unit that's uh, up to sort of 30 megawatt hour of uh, of capacity with it, uh, then we can look at a stage, potential stage rollout of those that hydrogen energy uh, system as part of our magnetite processing operations if the technology uh, meets the standards that we require um, and if we can be assured that we're going to get uh, a levelised cost of electricity um, uh, delivery for that project that's uh, within acceptable acceptable levels. So we've got a longer term view uh, with, uh, uh, with all of this, not just limited to this first phase of DSO operations. And everything obviously hinges on that iron ore price staying as strong as it is uh, for as long as possible. So do you have a particular view on how long it it, uh, will stay strong? Uh, I guess um, you've got to strike while the iron's hot. 
Well, absolutely. Look, that's what we're trying to do with our early DSO project. I mean, it makes sense to try and uh, move some tonnes early. I think people would like to see us get into production and re-rate as a producer, so that's what we're looking to do. I think if you had an idea where iron ore prices are going to be going over the longer term and you had a crystal ball, you'd be a very rich person. I think um, you've got to expect we're, we're in a pretty hot market at the moment. The iron ore price will come back. There's no, no doubt about that. Uh, what's important is to make sure that our cost of operations uh, are, uh, are contained. And, and, and look, this energy solution uh, as we go forward will be part of that. Um, so um, we're confident that we'll be designing projects at both levels that are going to be, uh, you know, uh, assuming fairly conservative assumptions on iron ore pricing. But, um, uh, you know, look, that's, that's just another reason why we're looking at um, uh, integration of renewable energy. I think that it brings the cost of energy down, uh, you know, um, uh, to, uh, to levels that um, uh, will be uh, hopefully very, very competitive. Is it comparable with diesel generation? Well, that's part of what we'll be looking at as part of the trial. I would expect that we will have um, uh, some uh, very good savings um, uh, when compared to uh, running off diesel power. Um, you know, you've also got a whole range of other issues associated with using diesel power in remote locations and the, the transport between um, you know, different generators that you might have there for, for example, water and uh, other facilities. Uh, so there's a lot of logistics around carting diesel as well. Um, it's, not just, uh, it's not just the cost of the diesel itself, it's all the logistics around delivering all of that. Andrew Bruton, he's the CEO of MacArthur Minerals, catching up with Jared Lucas and talking about a proposed new iron ore mine in the goldfields which plans to use hydrogen power. Half past 12 here on the Country Hour and Ben Gabbana is here with an update for you from the newsroom. Hi, Ben. Very good afternoon to you, Belinda. In the news this hour, the Prime Minister and state and territory leaders have stopped short of mandating coronavirus vaccinations for residential aged care workers. National Cabinet has instead agreed to encourage workers to get vaccinated while awaiting further advice from health experts on how states and territories could implement a compulsory system. Former West Australian Aboriginal Affairs Minister Ben Wyatt says his appointment to the Board of Rio Tinto coincides with changes within the company designed to improve its relationship with Indigenous communities. As Minister, Mr Wyatt last year accused the mining giant of being reluctant to engage with traditional owners after the company blasted ancient rock shelters in Jukin Gorge. And major crash officers have arrived in the Kimberley town of Derby to investigate a fatal crash from overnight. Police say a 25-year-old woman was killed when her car collided with a light pole on the Derby Highway about 11.30 last night. Derby Highway is closed in both both directions and more news coming up at one o'clock. Ben, thank you so much for that update on the Country Hour 29 to 1. Still to come, you are off to that feedlot in Williams and catching up with the owner of the feedlot talking about the fact that, well, cattle prices are just too hot at the moment. So he didn't even go along to the Mount Barker cattle market yesterday. And tantalisingly close to the results of the CBH, grower director elections. Those numbers just being finalised. Hopefully you will meet the two new faces on the CBH board very shortly. Hopefully those results in and you will find out before the news at one o'clock today. Right now it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Pete Clegg is on deck today. Pete, take us for a look around the Southwest Land Division. Thanks, Belinda. Um, look, it's uh, going to be a pretty clear uh, day through uh, most of it today uh, with just some showers around the southwest district and right along the coast, uh, mostly developing this evening. Uh, there are a couple of frontal bands that are coming along over the weekend, so 
Uh, one of those is just offshore at the moment and, and yeah, will approach this evening. But elsewhere around, it'll be, yeah, fairly clear and obviously quite cold again overnight tonight with those conditions. So uh, expect uh, another jumper and fire night if you're out in the country there, I'm sure. Uh, they've been going steadily the last few days. Uh, in terms of what we expect over the weekend, though, uh, fairly mild conditions continuing with those fronts. Uh, cools off a little bit over the weekend as well. In terms of rainfall, uh, we do expect those showers on uh, with the front to come through sort of Saturday evening into Sunday, more so on Sunday, um, really increasing through basically Durian Bay down to um, Esperance, uh, basically anywhere southwest of that line, should see some showers through uh, Sunday. And, and in terms of rainfall amounts, really looking at around about uh, look 5 to 10 mils, I'd say, on the south coast and, and much less once you're going inland. So not a lot of rainfall out of this front. It does look to be a fairly weak one that comes through. Uh, and then it clears out very rapidly in behind it with a ridge developing over the southwest in its wake on Monday. So, uh, yeah, we're not expecting too many showers around uh, the southwest land division on Monday, just basically along the south coast and mainly about that Esperance coastline as the front continues along that area. And then by the time we get to Tuesday, look, there's uh, an increasing amount of uncertainty as there's a lot of tropical moisture up in the north and some of that could start to feed down into the western parts. Uh, but at this stage, I'd say not looking like a whole lot by Tuesday. It's going to be more likely later on in uh, uh, next week. All right, something to look forward to then later in the week, next week for the Southwest Land Division. Into northern and eastern parts, Pete, what's going on there? Well, all of that tropical moisture that is up to the northwest at the moment, that's streaming lots of cloud out over the Pilbara and uh, southern Kimberley and north interior at the moment. So even a couple of light showers around through the Pilbara and, and into the south Kimberley there uh, over the next 24 hours. But yeah, only looking to get maybe 0.2 to 0.4 mils if you get anything at all. Uh, but yeah, certainly uh, it's been fairly consistent, that cloud streaming over, and, and that'll continue, as I say, over the next uh, 24 to 36 hours. Hours. Uh, and otherwise then uh, that, that moisture that I was talking about really could start to feed into the more northwest of the state sort of around the Exmouth area and pushing down to Carnarvon by the time we're getting to Monday and Tuesday so we could start to see some showers uh, developing through those areas um, even as far to the east as Karatha but um, it's going to be more likely yeah like I say from, from the Tuesday onwards uh, period and, and then we could start to see some re relatively decent falls through those areas but like I say there's a fairly big level of uh, model discrepancy at the moment so uh, yeah we're certainly keeping an eye on that uh, but over the weekend for the most part it should be fairly clear and uh, and particularly through the gold fields uh, south interior and inland parts of the Eucla uh, expecting and through the Gascoigne as well I should say it, it is looking to be uh, a clear weekend and, and really lovely sunny days uh, but yeah will be chilly overnight with certainly some isolated frost around as well so uh, yeah if you're, if you're looking for a good place to go for the long weekend, I'd be picking the sort of Midwest region of, of the state because I think that's going to be um, the, the spot-on spot for clear days and, and lovely sunny days. Any warnings this afternoon? 
Uh, we've just got the marine wind warnings out for sort of around the Cape Lewin to Albany area with some northwesterlies down there. And uh, we're continuing to see fairly fresh easterlies up in the north. So the Kimberley, uh, West Kimberley and Pilbara coastal waters will have some uh, strong winds again tomorrow morning in particular. So, yeah, that's, that's it for now. And Pete, where have you been? It's been ages <laughs> since you've popped into the country out here. So what's your story? Uh, well, my story is that uh, during summer, I am uh, usually recruited onto a tropical cyclone operational desk, uh, which uh, we man all the way through the season and um, make sure that we keep an eye on what all those pesky cyclones do. So, yeah, that's why I've been absent from the, from the senior forecaster role for a while, but I'll be here for a couple of weeks at least. Ah, he's back. Good to talk to you, Pete. Thanks for that. Thanks very much, Bill. On the country hour, 23 to 1. And in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, there has been no rainfall readings above 3 millimetres anywhere across the state except 9 mils at the Mount Madden East Deep Herd Station in the Great Southern. That is the spot on the map. Still to come, as I said, the wool market details. Perry Roberts along just before the news at one. And I am just watching my phone like a hawk, waiting for the all clear for the official results in the CBH grower director elections. Any minute now, I'm told. In the meantime, Western Australia's biggest private feedlotter has decided sale yard cattle prices are now too high for him. Gordon Atwell's family runs about 12,500 head of cattle at Williams, a few hours southeast of Perth. He's been buying cattle all year, but yesterday decided not to go to the Mount Barker sale because he says prices have now reached the point where his margins are just too tight. We're very, very high. We're teetering on the top at the moment, it should be. Um, it can't get much higher because there'll be no money to be made out of um, store cattle. That's about what it boils down to. Have you ever seen it like this before? Nowhere near this. Never even thought it would get this high at this time of the year. No. There's a shortage of protein in the world, but uh, this is exceptionally high. I'm just going to play a little bit of today's Mount Barker report that was on um, today's country. I'm just keen to get your thoughts. 480 head of cattle sold at Mount Barker today, so numbers down about 170 on last week. Tracy Kilner is there now. How did it go, Tracy? I'm assuming the prices were really high again. Any records? Yes, Belinda, Angus Deers weighing over 330 kilos sold to a high sold high demand to feed lotters at a top of 586 cents, returning over $2,300 a head. Feeder buyers were very active on the heavier younger cattle, while restocker buyers were keen to secure lighter types. Lightweight wiener steers topped the market at 618 cents, while heifers topped at 600 cents a kilo. The wiener steers weighing between 280 and 330. I'm just looking at your eyes there, Gordon, because you actually hadn't heard today's report, had you? That's, um, they're, they're pretty big prices, aren't they? They are amazing. Any farm would be pretty happy with that, wouldn't they? <laughs> but I think that's a little bit too high. You couldn't, you couldn't get out of those cattle, um, whatever you did with them. You've got to get like $2,500 or $2,800 to get out of those out of a feedlot. So it's just not worth it. Um, you've just got to sit on the fence for a while. And uh, lucky we've got all our cattle we don't need anymore. Do you want to put those prices into context? I mean, what were you paying last year, for instance? Can you give us an example? We would have averaged just over uh, between $1,050 and $1,100 for cattle, buy them in. Uh, 
Uh, this year, probably up to about fifteen to sixteen hundred dollars a head to buy them in. So it's a lot, lot more. You'd have to be careful what you bought to where you're going to sell them later on. So you've gradually been buying. Have you been buying many at when they've been at this top end? The prices in May. No, we've we've only had uh, probably six weeks, five, six weeks of high prices. All our cattle we buy early and we background them, so we've got them for later on. We've bought um, nearly 11,000 head of cattle so far this year, but they've been bought early. I mean, we're just standing in front of them now. The, you, you've got a feedlot here right near Williams. How many numbers would you have now? Uh, we'll put through about 12,500 head of cattle this year. We do 300 every week out. And you say you feed them, they're just chomping away very quietly at the moment. They'd go through a bit, wouldn't they? Yeah, we use nearly 50 tonne of grain a day. Yeah, we've got two mixers running. Yeah, it's a continuous sort of operation. 50 tonne? <laughs> I can't even picture that. No, it's a road train a day. Yeah. We basically use a road train of grain a day. And um, we grow all our own hay, but we buy all, our, all the grain in. But if you're buying your cattle for such high prices, you would still have your contracts. You supply coals, and I would imagine they just want you to keep them coming, keep them coming. Do you have to keep supplying no matter how much you're paying for your cattle? They work with us very well. Yeah, we've got no complaints about what they do. They realise it's high. It's high in the east. It's high here. Whether it'll cool off a little bit, needs to. It's a bit too high. But um, time will tell. By the time the new calves arrive, which are hitting the ground now, they might come back a little bit by next year. You've been in the game a fair while. What do you think is going to happen this month as we come towards June 30th? Uh, there'll still be people that'll pay that exceptional money that they did this week at Mount Barker. But whether they make anything out of it, it'll be a good tax write-off for them because they might not make much money out of it. Yeah. It'll be just a bit of an exercise to have cows in your paddock. And what do you think's going to happen for the next year or so? I mean, the, the yeast is starting to recover. Um, I would imagine some of the demand is because of still what's happening in the yeast at the moment. That's partly why the prices are so high, isn't it? Yeah, the yeast will uh, probably come breed a few more and uh, we'll have a good drop of calves here this year. So it may just drag the price back. If it comes back... To realistically, you know, fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars for good steers, then we can all make a dollar. We don't want it to go back to three years ago, but at the moment it's uh, just a bit too high. We normally try and have a chat where the animals are so that you get a few sound effects. These ladies haven't they haven't even opened their mouths yet, except to eat. <laughs> they seem to like eating. That's about what it did. <laughs> yeah, no, there's not much noise. No, they are um, very happy at the moment. It's a good season here this year, so we're having a very good run. Just out of interest, rain-wise, how have you gone? I mean, I know it's just rained recently, but were you, were you struggling for a while to have enough water for all of these animals? Yeah, we have the feedlots pretty organised. We didn't have to reduce anything, but um, big dams and bores. But paddock cattle were hard when we were buying a lot of calves. When they were cheaper, we bought lots and lots of calves and paddocked them. So it was um, handy. We got the scheme water nearby. We used a bit of that, but we got by. It was a bit tight, wasn't it? It was definitely a bit tight, yeah. No, it, a lot of dams are dry this year. We've cleaned out a lot of dams, yeah. 
The countryside's looking nice now, though, isn't it? It's, it's glorious to see. Everything's just looking very lush. I haven't seen a season start this well for many, many years. This is one of the best starts we've ever had. Make a good season of it. Gordon Atwell, the biggest feedlotter in WA, speaking to Richard Hudson at his property at Williams. And I'm told he's literally the biggest or tallest feedlotter in WA as well. He's about two metres tall, six foot eight in the old measurement. Uh, Richard probably looked like a midget standing next to him. This is the Country Hour. It is a quarter to one. And if all goes to plan, a number of JBS abattoirs in Australia will be back in action today following a four-day shutdown caused by a cyber attack. JBS is Australia's largest meat processor. So what impact did this four-day shutdown have on prices and yardings across Australia this week? It's a question Matt Brand put to livestock analyst Robert Herman. Well, I think we, um, we're probably fairly fortunate, Matt, especially in the cattle market. There was very little movement, um, and that would indicate that um, demand for cattle is still strong uh, and it probably spread across to cover for JBS. It was interesting that in... Um, you know, the heavy steers in New South Wales eased a little bit, but in, but they rallied in Victorian Queensland. And the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator um, really didn't move much at all. It remained quite steady. And I think we've probably dodged the bullet because it, the yardings have been in decline to some degree with cattle, and that probably took the pressure off. Was JBS noticeably missing from some of Australia's biggest sale yards? It just wasn't on the rails? That's the reports we had, because... In Victoria, you can't, couldn't go to the sale yards this week because yeah. of uh, um, the COVID restrictions. But uh, the reports we had is that they just, you know, whether they were, weren't on the rails or weren't in attendance, but they certainly weren't operating. When we look at lamb and sheep prices this week, there is a bit of red ink there. But is is there a bit more going on than just JBS? No, I don't think there is more going on in terms of the red ink. You're right about the red ink, but the red ink was confined to Victoria and Remembering that Victoria is the, you know, where the numbers are still flowing through to some degree in the south, the biggest processing state is Victoria and, you know, the biggest processor in Victoria is JBS. So, you know, it was always going to have an impact here. I think um, we'll just wait and see, though. I mean, the numbers were quite significant, you know, a 90 cent drop on the Eastern States Trade Lamb Indicator or the Victorian Trade Lamb Indicator this week is a big move. You know, our feeling would be that um, given that, you know, it looks like things are getting back to normal pretty quickly now, uh, that that will be corrected next week because supply of lamb, Matt, has been coming through Victoria, you know, really strongly. We're not, it's not, there's no evidence there's any backup of lambs. I think, uh, year on year, we're about 11% ahead of uh, this time last year in terms of supply. So that would tell us that there's not a lot of lamb sitting out there that sort of going to flush into the market in a hurry. And this time of the year, supply is always tight and it just meets demand and um, prices usually stay pretty steady. So I think we'll see that correct this week. As far as I'm aware, there's no slaughter data out yet for the week. But what's your feeling? If you take JBS out of the equation, what does the, the weekly slaughter number look like? Uh, yes, it's a good question. There is no slaughter data out, and, and slaughter data is always delayed by a week anyway. So we only get, you know, it'll be two weeks before we get this week's slaughter data. So 
there's no doubt it'll be back. You know, there's no question about that. It's interesting even – I think meat processors need to take – get a pat on the back, though, because they do manage to um, readjust to adversity very quickly. And I go back to, you know, August last year when we had the COVID shutdown in, in Melbourne. Uh, I mean, they really got back to back to production and got going again very quickly and dealt with the big flush of lambs and sheep that came through the spring here. I think they're pretty well organised, Matt, and I think we'll find that we might be a little bit surprised that the numbers haven't been as hit as hard, especially when you average them out over a th- two or three-week period. We might find that, um, you know, they've, they've managed to get back to business as usual fairly quickly. Do you think the big supermarkets freaked out this week? Yeah, look, that's that's one thing that's difficult. I mean, I, you'd have to, I'd have to premise what I say by saying this is an opinion only. Um, we know that supply to supermarkets is just in time. We saw that with the toilet paper demand. And, and certainly um, fresh food and, and fresh meat would be in that category, even to some greater extent, probably. But that said, there's been no reports of shortages. And uh, again, you know, there'd be some stocks built up in, in chillers that would flow through. You know, a lamb doesn't get slaughtered today and ends up in the supermarket shelf tomorrow. So I think given that the it appears that, that, you know, JBS have done a fantastic job in getting their meatworks back to going again, and we'll just preface that by saying touch wood. Mm, um, yep. If that's the case, you know, we may not see any real marked disruption on the, on the supermarket shelves at all, I think. I mean, it would be much more disastrous if this had happened, you know, in 2019 or when we are trying to, you know, handle a drought. And if it had happened in the middle of spring, it would have been a bigger disaster, you know, where there's a big flow of sheep and lambs through. It's probably come at the best time if we could have orchestrated it. And in terms of the, so that, so the price to the farmer and the price in the sale yards is not going to be really severely impacted. And, you know, the way the supermarkets and the, um, or the retailers and the processors have their supply lines we're probably going to find that there's very little notice by the consumer and, and that's to the credit of the supply chain of the red meat industry. Robert Herman, he's the Managing Director of Mercado Market Analysts with Matty Brand. Nine to one. And concern is building among UK farmers about a trade deal that's being negotiated with Australia and many fear they would be undercut and that small-scale farms, which help with climate mitigation measures and biodiversity, could go out of business. But some farmers here in Australia say there could be opportunities that help both sides as well as the environment. The BBC's Rural Affairs correspondent Claire Marshall reports from the UK. Nestled in the rolling green hills of southwest England is the farm of David Barson, he heads out to check his beef herd. So you can see all the springborn calves in front of you. These are anything from sort of two months to ten days old. They graze in a way which helps to lock up carbon and encourage nature. In Australia, farmers can use some growth hormones and pesticides that are banned in the UK. How do I compete when I have these high standards that I want to keep? But the Australian beef would come in and it would probably go into the service sector and that would just depress the, the prices and I have to be profitable. 
the worry reaches west over the border to the uplands of Wales, the Breckens, and the farm of John Davies. He's got a thousand ewes. Australian lamb could also become tariff-free, so much cheaper to buy here. There are vast areas of Wales which farming is the premier industry. So if you do things that put that in jeopardy, because it's not just about the farm, it's about everybody involved within the community. The government has promised to set up an independent scrutiny committee, but a deal is reportedly imminent and the Trade and Agriculture Commission isn't yet in place. It also won't be able to look at the deal until after it's been done. In Western Australia, Nicola Kelleher's family farm produces high-quality beef. She's keen to export to the UK. She says it could be win-win for everyone. We don't use chemicals on our farm. We don't use antibiotics in our production of our animals. And we don't use hormone growth promotants. And I think we have the opportunity to support each other to really bring forward a message that any imported beef from Australia that is premium quality would actually help to underpin the price of premium beef in the UK. Some environmentalists also say it could be a good thing. The negotiations could protect British farmers and the planet. Patrick Holden is from the Sustainable Food Trust. We need a trade deal with Australia, but it needs to be based on an international framework which informs all future trade in food, making sure that that food is produced in ways which addresses climate change, promotes public health and restores biodiversity. We could lead the world in brokering that new framework, which could then make sure that we are not suffering from imports which are produced to lower standards. People have been told to buy local. How could a trade deal with Australia help the planet? It's almost certain that there'll be an ongoing need for international trade in food. I mean, if you take the example of the United Kingdom, we're not self-sufficient in food. Whether the trade is long distance or whether it's closer to hand, that food needs to come from farms which are part of the solution, not part of the problem. That is farmer David Barton ending that report by Claire Marshall. It is five minutes to one, not far away from the wool market. On Landline this week, putting bushfires in the past and getting back to farming. We turned in the hobby farm was there for probably six months, but I'm not going to give the fire satisfaction of burning us. And how country communities have stood together. A lot of people, you know, basically put their life on the line to help save this place. Landline's bushfire special, 12.30 Sunday on ABC TV. And don't miss that on ABC television. Now, just hoping for those results to come through from the CBH Grower Director elections, but quickly running out of time here on the Country House. So what I think I might do, just to see if we can squeeze it in at the end if those results come through, because there are two uh, by-elections results that we're just waiting on to see if they come through before the news at one, Uh, maybe just head off to the wool market right now because the wool market is up this week. The Eastern Market Indicator is up 23 cents to close at 1,343 cents a kilogram clean and the Western Market Indicator up 25 cents to finish the week at 1,385 cents a kilogram clean. Perry Roberts is reporting in from Tasmania this week. Now Perry, what takes you to Tasmania? Yeah, hi, Belinda. I'm in Tasmania this week on a bit of a working holiday. 
Um, in the Midlands, staying with Mr Charles Knowles, manager of Echo Cottage, one of Tasmania's premier wool clips. Oh, very nice. And But you're actually from Tasmania, so you must be checking out all, all the old haunts too. Yes, I'm a, I'm a proud Tasmanian, Belinda, and yeah, catching up with a few friends and actually being chauffeured around the island uh, this week. Well, you're very lucky. You've got a lot of friends and family to call on, I imagine, being from there. Yeah. It is a beautiful no, place. Yeah, I spent a lot of years there, so I'm, I'm quite jealous of you being over in Tasmania. I've got to get back there myself. Now, onto the wool market, Perry. What did you make of it this week? Yeah, well, uh, fine wool continues on its upward trajectory. Uh, 18 microns closing the week at 2014 plus 62, 19s at 1682 plus 51. 20s at 1352 plus 7 and 21s at 1259 plus 6. Skirtings uh, followed the trend. 18 microns up 58 cents. 19s 36 cents and 20s 12. Cardings were also in positive territory, closing up 18 for the week with the indicator at 908. And who was buying this week, Perry? Main buyers were PJ Morris, Techwall, West Coast and TNU. And next week, what's in store? Well, there's no sale in Fremantle next week, Belinda. However, we're having a wool queue electronic auction on Tuesday, which is run by AWI, so gives growers an opportunity to sell in a, a week where there's no auction here. Melbourne and Sydney have 38,674 bales on offer selling Tuesday and Wednesday. And what do you make of the electronic system? Oh, it's a good system. Unfortunately, it can't replicate the speed of an open cry auction, but it does give growers an opportunity to sell in a week and we don't have a sale in Fremantle. Yeah, it's a good option, isn't it? Perry, thank you for going through those details. No worries at all. Have a nice weekend. You too, Perry. That's Perry Roberts with a wrap of this week's Wool Market. Hello, I'm Rachel Mealy. Join me for The World Today. Victoria's set to get a centralised quarantine facility. We'll examine how it'll be better than using hotels and whether more should be built in other states. And Victoria's resisted calls for an early end to the lockdown after a couple of cases of false positives. So despite all the technology involved in testing, how is the system still delivering wrong results? The World Today. Join us. It is a minute to one and um, practically leaving it till the last minute. The results are in from the CBH Grower Director elections for District 1 and 4. So a couple of new faces on the CBH board and those results are... So in District 1, the candidates were Gareth Rowe from Walkaway and Gary Cosgrove from Minganew and Gareth Rowe from Walkaway, has been elected as a member director. So congratulations to Gareth. And in District 4, it was Wally Newman, Royce Taylor, Philip Blight and Jared Paganoni, the candidates in District 4. And Royce Taylor from Lake Grace has been elected as a member director. So congratulations to Royce Taylor in District 4 and Gareth Rowe in District 1. And CBH Chairman Simon Stead has thanked all the candidates who participated in the election. Great to catch up with you all this week on The Country Hour and back here on Monday. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.